0: You know, my dad, I remember he was a banker and he used to tell me that you could always tell who the lawyer in the room and who the entrepreneur in the room was, because the lawyer was the one in general who would try to show that they're the smartest person in the room in general, the entrepreneur would come in and he would try to find the smartest guy in the room. So I kind of look at myself more as an entrepreneur. I don't want to be. I want to be the dumbest guy in the room and surround and find the smartest guy. So,
1: welcome to the Freedom Chasers Podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we have Lord Ron Diamond on the show, and I say Lord because Ron owns some property over in another country, which makes him a Lord. If you don't have that, it's kind of fun to do. But first and foremost, Ron is a founder and CEO of Diamond Wealth, and he is the man that gets to bring in, evaluate, and connect humongous deals for his clients as a part of a family office. Family offices are those that manage wealth for families or a single family at really, really high net worth families, 50 million, hundred million and above. Ron, we are so grateful and thankful that you're on the show with us today. And if you don't mind taking us into the show by taking us into when you were in the boardroom with Drexel and Burnham and during the crash, like take us through that scenario and, and guide us into it.
0: 1989, I'm 24 years old. Two years out of Northwestern, working with Drexel, Burnham, Lombier, uh, at the time, the most profitable firm on Wall Street by a lot. Um, this was with Michael Milken when he created the junk bonds. I'm in the room when Fred Joseph, the CEO, comes in and announces we're going bankrupt. Now, I lost a good job. I didn't have any stock or very few stock options, so it didn't really impact me financially that much. But I very vividly remember a lot of people, men in their 60s and 70s, openly weeping. And in in the 80s on Wall Street, that didn't happen. And what happened is many, not all, but many of the people lost most, or if not all, of their money because they kept it in Drexel stock. So my takeaway from that was that I would always, and I am extraordinarily loyal to people, but I will never be loyal to a company. And that was my takeaway from Drexel. So I wanna dive into that statement. So not loyal to a company. And when you say not
1: loyal, meaning not loyal in the sense that I won't buy their stock, not Mm -mm. loyal in the sense that I won't, won't
0: commit to working for somebody for life. Not loyal is meaning company ABC. I will never be loyal to company ABC. I will be loyal to Bill, Bob and George who work for company ABC. So I'm loyal to people, but not to companies. And it, it was, I was impacted a lot by what happened with Drexel. Cause I remember Drexel was like Goldman Sachs on steroids. And if it could happen, Drexel it could happen to anybody. Yeah. And so like, walk us through, like,
1: did you have stock at one point in Drexel and then pull out because you saw the, the warning signs or just kind of a happenstance, you just decided to invest other places?
0: No, I did not. Um, I was too new on the curves. Oh, um we I wasn't granted stock options probably three or four years later I would be um and nor would I would have had the foresight to be able to know that they were going bankrupt because you know remember this was this was the most it was the most profitable firm on Wall Street and for them to go bankrupt was a complete shock um to a lot of people, a lot of very sophisticated investors. So no, I wouldn't have had the foresight to to sell it had I had, had stock options.
1: So what I love is you're talking about your loyalty to people, and this is not something I think the average person or the average real estate investor would think about when they think of Wall Street, right? They think of the sharks that are going to literally eat people at every possible turn, but that's not your take on this. So so talk to me about like how much is loyalty a part of the Wall Street culture,
0: and obviously if it's not, like, why, why is it important to you? It's very little part of Wall Street culture. Wall Street culture in general is very cutthroat. It's very, um, how can I benefit um, at your expense? And um, interests are typically not aligned. Again, I'm generalizing. For me, um, I look at the world through a different lens and I was probably a little more myopic when I was younger, but I look at the world through more of a lens of, um, if you surround yourself with good people, that you trust and um are competent good things will happen so when i was younger i used to only want to work with the absolute smartest people in the room and what i've realized as i've gotten a little bit older is that intelligence is a commodity integrity is not and you want to be around people who you can trust implicitly so all i've done it's not complicated it's not rocket science I've surrounded myself with people that I trust implicitly, that are smarter than me in various asset classes, and we work together. It's not complex.
1: What is your vetting process to understand if a person is operating
0: with integrity? It's a really good question. Um, well, you know, f- first of all, a lot of this has to do with, you know, your intuition and your gut feeling. And I'm not always right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Um, but I'm I'm pretty good at it. I'm, 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 I'm better at it now. Um, Obviously, um, you know, you could talk to people, um, you know, if I'm going to invest in a company and, and and they're going to talk about what great people they are, I'm not necessarily going to talk to the president to confirm that the CEO is a good guy. I might talk to the janitor. I might talk Mm -hmm. to the guy who rides the elevator with them or in the lunchroom, you know, how do you treat people? So, I think there's things that you could do again it's not rocket science but you 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 can tell you can really tell who's a good person and not if you really just listen and i think one of the skill sets that most of us myself included are not great at i'm getting better is listening and listening is a skill set we're all we all need to work on
1: this is so true. This kind of reminds me of like the advice that a lot of times parents will give their kids when they're thinking about getting married, right? It's like, hey, go ahead and see how the woman treats her dad. And then you know, like, this is how she thinks about treating the men in her life. And I love how you're relating this to the janitor because it shows just their overall concern for people, which I think can be a good, yeah. I think you're, that's, that's a really, really great insight. So let's take it from you, you go through this crash with Drexel and Burnham. Was that what led you, you know, into family office and, and maybe a little bit away from Wall Street? Or give us give us a little bit of idea of how you transitioned from there?
0: Well, it was serendipitous. So remember, this was a kind of a shock. And so what happened was when Drexel imploded, um, I another thing happened. My father, who I was very close with, uh, developed prostate cancer, and he was living in Chicago. So I moved back to Chicago. So my intention when I got the job at Drexel was. I would work here for 50 years, and if I did well, hopefully run one of the divisions and retire at Drexel Burnham. Um, Two years later, that didn't happen. So I came back to Chicago and uh, figured out what I wanted to do, and I started a hedge fund, which was relatively early in the hedge fund space. So in 1990, I launched a hedge fund. Again, it was not a grand plan. My plan was to work for Drexel for 50 years. Um, They went bankrupt. I had to pivot, and that's what we did. So that's kind of how I got launched into the, into the um, hedge fund world, which eventually, eventually took me into the family office world.
1: Let's dive into like, you're young, you're at Drexel Burnham, your whole world is probably to some degree turned upside down, at least mentally. Like, give us the psychological emotional process of going through that, like, was it an identity shift or what was happening?
0: I don't know if it was an identity shift. It was just a very surreal moment. I mean, I could still remember sense. I could remember what people were. I could remember people who I was next to. I could remember facial expressions of people crying. I I mean, it was just a very, one of the moments in life. It was just very, very surreal. Um, And it was hard to take in, you know, because I looked at it through a lens of somebody who was 24 years old, who was just learning Wall Street for the first time. Whereas other people were looking at it through the lens of they've been loyal to a company for 40 years, and now their net worth was wiped out. So to, to me, it was just a very surreal moment. And so you watched this behemoth
1: of a company get wiped out. Now you're in Chicago dealing with some difficult stuff and launching a, a hedge fund. Was there any difficulty psychologically from the standpoint, like, well, if this company who should have had their stuff together couldn't do it, like... Like what sort of like mental state were you in or were you like so confident in your own abilities that you're like, I'm going to make this work?
0: Well, I had more control, right? So if, you know, I, I would love to say I knew I was going to go into this and I knew it was going to do well. I didn't, I, 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 I thought I would do well. I was, you know, pretty um, good investor. Um, and there were reason you know, objective reasons why I thought I would do well. But, you know, I went into it with an open mind, knowing that if it didn't work out, I'm 24, 24 25 years old at the time, I can pivot. I was confident though. Um, I had a lot of confidence that I that I would do well, um, but I was also objective knowing, you know, there's certain things that are outside of my control. So I went in cautiously optimistic.
2: Talk
1: to us, you, so you launched the hedge fund. Like what are the first assets that you're investing in? And what was the reason for picking those assets?
0: Well, um, we started out, so we, we ended up running about $250 million, but we didn't start there. We started at like $5 million. So it was much smaller when we got started. Um, and what I did, we were good at picking stocks in the market, primarily mid-cap stocks. Um, remember, in the 90s, it was much easier to create alpha and to make money in the public markets. I think today, it's very, very hard to do that and what you guys do in real estate uh private equity venture capital i think it's much easier to create alpha Um, and that's what i invest in today okay so you you're really loving the real estate space well i'm loving the real estate space based on the fact that it's been the best performing asset class
1: definitely and and of the i mean obviously the real estate space is a huge space with all kinds of asset classes which which Asset classes within real estate, do you think still have the most potential that haven't been
0: maybe uh, compressed as much? Well, interesting. So it's March 17th now. And so in the last nine months, we've just seen interest rates go up quicker than they've ever gone up ever. So, you know, you're in a different phase right now. Um, But if you look at it, there's always um, real estate's a great asset class. You could always make money in real estate. Now, there's certain areas, if you're a ground up developer today, and rates went against you, you know, it's a bit of a challenge. But there's always um, ways to make money, and I think if if you look at it from a long term perspective, um, I look at demographics and I look at trends. So, um, you know, senior housing, for instance, is something the population is getting older. Ten thousand people are turning sixty five every day. So, if you look, and then the baby boomers also like nice things. So. I could see you know they're not going to be the senior housing of my parents or my grandparents so i kind of look at trends like that and then again i just surround myself with people that know more than me in various areas like so for real estate um you know in office or multifamily or self-storage or whatever i've found people that i trust implicitly that are at least in my opinion best in class and we work we work on the deals together
1: so if someone,
0: uh, first of all, I love that you say best in class, because obviously,
1: like, performance is the biggest thing. Getting the best deal is not the most important thing. Actually, let's dive into that. Like, why, why focus on best in class as opposed to something that maybe says that they have higher returns?
0: You know, it's interesting. So with, with family offices, um, when a family office is going to work with somebody, the first, second, and third thing they want to know is, can I trust this person? And then the fourth thing is, okay, what's your one, three, five year track record? What's your biggest drawdown? If you look at it from an institutional standpoint, that's flipped. They want to know first what's your one, three, five year track record? What's your biggest drawdown? Then they'll get to know you. So the family office space, what I'm in, uh, is much more relationship driven. And to me, um, you know, I found that if you surround yourself with good people that you trust implicitly that are very smart, not always, but typically good things happen. And that's basically how I built my business. Kind of based on the concept of pick the jockey, right?
1: Like, you know, not, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, you've got these assets being presented to you, humongous deals. Like what's your mindset? How do you evaluate them? Are you, like, how much are you evaluating the deal itself versus the person that's going to run that deal?
0: Well, typically, um, you know i've been doing this for quite some time now and i've been in the family office space for almost 20 years so you know i i do know a lot of people now but um i so i typically know the people who are bringing me bring me the deals um and then i'll you know look at it and then if it's um a student housing deal or if it's a multifamily real estate deal i'll in my network i'll find the people who at least in my opinion are best in class in those specific segments they'll help me vet the deal. I'll put money in, they'll put money in and it'll help me with the due diligence. So that's typically what we do.
1: I was talking with with somebody that is in the private money space and they're saying that their due diligence costs are like 50,000 plus a deal uh, just because of the size of the deals they're doing. Can you give me an idea? Like what does due diligence look like? What does it cost to do due diligence on these big deals for
0: a family office? I have no idea. I mean, I couldn't tell you what it costs to do due diligence. I mean, look, a lot of it is your time. So the most precious thing that I have and that you guys have and all your listeners have is your time. So you put a value, dollar value on that. It's hard to do. Um, But, you know, I, I, um, you know, people kind of know what we like, what we, you know, I don't invest in crypto. I don't invest in, you know, seeds or really risky early stage venture. So I'm not going to be showing those deals. So you know, it, but it's also you have to look at it as a cost of doing business, right? So you can't say that I spent fifty thousand dollars doing, you know, or X number of hours doing diligence in this deal, so I lost fifty thousand dollars. It's like paying an attorney. If you pay an attorney twenty thousand dollars, you didn't lose that money. It's it's the cost of doing business. So I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, much more holistically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so you're working with and on behalf of this family, generally in a family office relationship, have they just kind of given you almost like a carte blanche type
0: thing or how much is like you vet the deal, you bring it to them, then they make the final decision? Well, first it's not a family. So what we currently do, we work with about a hundred single family offices and these are families that are worth anywhere between 250 million to $30 billion. So these are very wealthy families. And I know who likes what, and they tell me what they're looking for. So if we have a multifamily real estate deal, there's probably 65 families that like that asset class that I would show the deal to. Having said that, if it's a um, cannabis deal, there might be six. If it's a healthcare deal, there might be 15. So I kind of know who likes what. Um, I vet it. Um, I put in some money. They put in a lot of money, and we structure the deals and go forward.
1: Love this. And so basically, because you're working on behalf of 100 family offices, it's it's almost every asset class to some degree could work because some of the families will have an appetite.
0: Yeah, but it's again, I'm looking at where I think I can where I think we can create alpha. So it's not so much that somebody would have an appetite, it's more where What areas do I think that I've got a competitive advantage where I can make money? Now, I'm wrong a lot too. I'm just right a little bit more than I'm wrong. <laughs> and That's true with most people, um, you know, if, if they're decent at what they do. So um, I just try to find areas in, in the market um, that are unique. We also have the luxury of a lot of deals that we get. They might be from some of the really large family offices, who's got a team of 25, 30 people to vet the deals and it's just too small for them. So, you know, $20 million deal is not too small for me. It is for some large family offices. So we get a lot of deal flow from other family offices who love the deal, it just doesn't, it's just too, too small for them to do.
1: I love that. Yeah, and so that gives you some flexibility there. So when you're thinking about returns and creating alpha, et cetera, like, is that like an individual family office basis or like, how do you determine what is a win in a deal?
0: It's a good question, and there's no right answer for that. Uh, I mean, there's benchmarks so you can compare it to, right? So if you're going to invest, I don't invest in the public markets. I think it's very hard today. I made my money in in the public markets in the '90s, investing in in, in public stocks, but I think it's very hard to create alpha in the public markets. I just have money in in index funds, and and, and I think I'm right. Um, but, you know, and I could argue with people about it, um, but I think you, you definitely can create alpha in the p- private markets, what you guys do in real estate, private equity, venture capital, credit, things like that. So that's really where we focus on and um, just try to surround ourselves with really, really good people.
1: Do you feel pressure to get money invested? Like, are they like chomping at the bit? Like, hey, Ron, like, or is it is it pretty
0: relaxed? I feel zero pressure um, because, you know, the beauty of a family office and what, what's happening now, just to take a step back, you've got, this is a relatively new industry. So there's roughly 17,000 family offices in the country, ball in the world, ballpark. Um, 68% of those family offices were created since 2000 and half of those were created since the crash. So this is a very new industry. Having said that, it's also a flawed industry because the model today doesn't work. Only 25% of families make it to the second generation, 10 make it to the third, and five make it to the fourth. So you've got huge amounts of capital in what I'll call our inefficient hands. And why is that? Well, just because you made a lot of money selling Beanie Babies or Five Hour Energy or or a chain of gas stations, um, which I couldn't do, doesn't mean you have the skill set to take a billion to grow it to two, to do some estate planning, wealth transfer, philanthropy, governance, succession, next gen, and grow the asset base. So it's two different, and you know, one of the biggest issues with many of these family offices, the biggest competitor that they have is the ego of the matriarch or patriarch, because, because they did well in something, and again, I make no judgments. If somebody made their money, they could do whatever they want. I could just give them my opinion based on some facts, and you know, a lot of people also will set up family offices who who aren't qualified to set up family offices. So one of the questions is how much money do you need to have a family office? In, in my opinion, you need a bare bones minimum of $250 million in order for it to make economic sense. Otherwise, you're better off going to an MFO, which is a multifamily office where you share the costs with other people. And that's where why they were created. So typically multifamily offices handle 10 million to 200 250 million and then over 250 if you want to take it seriously into the full time job mm. then you can have a single family office but the problem is a lot of people don't take it as seriously as they took their business and if you don't you're going to get killed
1: yeah and give us some of the ways that people get killed
0: um ego is certainly one of them um i think that you know it's a new industry so um when you have a liquidity event all of a sudden everybody become more popular. Everybody wants to get 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 in you. So the family office have one hand on their ear and one hand on their wallet. Um, the, the first thing you should do when you have a liquidity event is talk to an estate plan attorney, which is very boring, but that's like the foundation of a house. So if you don't, you want to build the cool deck and the cool second floor and, and all that stuff, but without the proper foundation, the house doesn't work. And so one of the problems a lot of people make is they have a liquidity event and they want they see a great real estate deal and it might be a great deal uh, or a great private equity deal, but they shouldn't even look at investments until they've structured everything because without the proper structure, everything will fall apart.
1: Wow! So let's actually take this structuring and take it to someone that's getting started in their journey. Maybe they got a business that has some real potential, or they're really starting to hit some success and they're they're growing. They're now in the you know. 10 million range, let's say. And so they, they could see that the horizon is really great. What level of structuring should they be doing at that point where they don't have enough assets for a family office or a multifamily office that could set them up well?
0: Well, I think a lot of the things is, um, I remember when I ran my hedge fund, um, I was with a billion dollar um, family office and I was hoping to have him become an investor, he eventually did become an investor. <laughs> But he had his estate planning attorney in the room. And the the estate planning attorney is a brilliant guy, but he had no clue on what I was talking about from the investment standpoint. And then I I asked the the person afterwards in a in a polite way, I'm like, why was he in the room? You know, I I asked it nicely. And he kind of, you know, he was 65 and put his arm, I was 30 or whatever, and he put his arm around me. He's like, You'll you'll understand. He goes, the goal is not to be worth a billion dollars. The goal is to be worth zero, but control as much as you can. And all these T&E or trust and estates planning and attorneys do is they get things out of your estate, asset protection, things like that. So when somebody goes off the Forbes 400 list, it's not that they had a bad year, they just did good planning in many instances, not all.
1: Interesting. So, So a wise or savvy person knows that some of the greatest wealth out there is not gonna show up on the Forbes list.
0: Well, yes and no. So, so it will, but I'm just saying that in general, the goal, you know, I had a, a, somebody who developed more real estate than almost anybody in Chicago. And, you know, I had to get his, you know, income statement and net worth and said zero. I'm like, no, seriously, zero. And it was true. He had all the assets outside of his estate. So the key there is to basically it gives you asset protection because we live in a very litigious society. So you want to bulletproof your estate, number one. And then number two, um, you want to transfer things downstream to your kids, to your grandkids. There's a whole bunch of different tech planning techniques which you can do. Um, but it's a tough balance, right? Because you don't want to give your kids too much money. Um, and there's a so it's a lot of a balancing act. So what I've tried to do is listen to people who are older than me because typically there's not a direct correlation between the older you are and the smarter you are, but I have found in general that the older you are, the wiser you are, and that's where I learn a lot.
1: So if Ron Diamond was given all the control in the world and he were to create a plan and give it to families, like this is how you should give money to your kids. Like this is the plan to get the money to last forever and to give the kids the right amount? Like, how, how, what would that plan look like?
0: It's it, Hard to answer because it, could, it depends on the kids. So, you know, you've got some kids who, you know, it. the worst thing a parent can do, I've got two beautiful daughters. They're 19 and 22 and they're tremendous children. Um, they live with gratitude and not entitlement. And the worst thing you could do is to raise a kid who's entitled. So if you've got a kid who's entitled, Um, and you start giving that kid money uh, at a young age, that's a recipe for disaster. Whereas somebody who is much more grounded and and appreciates things and will invest more cautiously and thoughtfully, you can. So there's no one answer for that. Um, It's really dependent on the kids. But a lot of it has to do with you putting methods in place where if you're gonna ha- pass out a hundred million dollars, you don't give it to a 16 year old kid. I mean, if you have a thousand dollars and you're 16 years old, that's a lot of money. If you give the, a 16 year old kid $10 million, it, it's hard to process that. So you could stagger, you can give it, give them money at different ages. And there are people who are much smarter than me in, in the estate planning world who have different techniques to do that. Um, but it's not one size fits all. And it's just something that has to be thought through.
1: If someone uh, was starting to really do well in an asset class, like, I mean, on the podcast, we interview people that are doing a lot of multiple million dollar profit deals. They're buying deals at really, really great value in the in the real estate space. What's the best way to get on your radar to be able to pitch you a deal?
0: It's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of um, times because we work with a lot of very wealthy families, you know, I, I'm called quite often because I have access to a lot of capital. And, um, so I I've done a pretty good job about screening things and I've got some people who, who, who help me screen it. So I'm typically gonna, it, it would take a couple calls and some, some emails for me to look at something to, to have a call. Cause otherwise I could literally be on the call with people 24 nice. seven listening to different deals. So I try to do, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm getting better at delegating. And that's something that as you grow, I don't care what business you're in, that's something you have to do.
1: Let's say somebody has a real desire to be in that in the you know family office space. Like for me, like there's like a curiosity because I'm a math major, I love numbers, etc. Like let's say someone's having some success and they they want to be you someday. Like, what's the path
0: look like? Yeah, they don't want to be me. <laughs> um, but I think that um, if you want to get in the family office, the reason it's such a great industry also is it's not just, there's 10 trillion. Let's put it in context. There's $10 trillion in assets in family offices today. There's 6.5 trillion in hedge fund globally worldwide. So this market's bigger than the entire hedge fund industry. You combine that with the fact that over the next 15 years, you've got the largest transfer of wealth in history. So, there's roughly $65 trillion that's being transferred from the baby boomers to the next gen in the next 15 years. Largest transfer of wealth ever. This market is in the next 10 to 15 years will be larger than the private equity and real estate markets combined. So if you think about that, the, the numbers involved in that, it's just a massive market. The issue is it's still a very inefficient, very fragmented, very siloed industry and we're maybe only in the second inning. So I think how it's going to play out is as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early eighties, family offices will never replace private equity or venture capital, but they're going to start to disrupt some of these. And part of the reason for that is it's typically it's much better alignment of interest because a lot of the private equity firms and venture capital firms have become AUM. Uh, it's a, they're making their money on the two percent. The funds are too big. And so there's, not so much alignment of interest. And one of the first, second, third things I always look for is I wanna make sure not every investment I'm gonna do is works and some of them don't work, but I wanna make sure that there's alignment of interest and everyone's interests are aligned. And that's really important.
1: So let's talk about the transfer of wealth a little bit. My understanding from what you're saying is that these wealthy families, the ones that the, the family office space that's growing they're going to be the benefactors of this wealth, right? At the expense of say the general population that, you know, one way or another is, is, is giving it to them. So is, is that accurate?
0: Yeah. And it's a, it's a problem, right? Because, you know, you need, um, the disparity of wealth is, is, is a huge problem in our society. And you've got more and more money concentrated in fewer and fewer hands while it's good for what I do it's not really good from a societal standpoint and without a sustainable middle-class typically things don't work out historically that well for, for society. So I I think that um, they're going to have to make some changes right now. The tax codes are structured where the wealthier you are um, you know, the more advantages you have. And if you think about the people like in your industry, real estate, it's a, it's a fabulous industry from a tax standpoint. I mean, 1031 exchange is if I'm in real estate and only doing real estate, that's a phenomenal thing to do. Having said that, it's you know it, it it's not playing with a level playing field because it's such a huge advantage. If you look at people who in the private equity and in venture capital and in um, real estate industries who make their money on a carry and they carry how their carried interests are taxed, not at long-term gain, you know, how they're structured, that also makes a big deal. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with the tax code and how it's structured. And, um, you know, it it is what it is. And and you just have to figure out whatever niche you're going to play in. But the people who have benefited the most, the private equity guys, the venture capital guys, the real estate people, they all have tax advantage structures so
1: let's talk about so this wealth transfer goes to these you know elites wealthy elites and people even like tim and i were benefiting from the 1031s and the cost segregations and those types of tax things and so we're seeing our networks grow now with family offices now you're taking these wealthy people you're taking the fact that, that, that there's a the largest transfer of wealth and now you're in giving them the tools to keep that wealth for generations right which in some ways exacerbates the problem even further like what would be your solution? Like, how can we help people, you know, be wealthy at the top, but how can we also not do it at the expense of society?
0: Well, that's a more of a political question, and I'm I'm very much a capitalist, and I do believe that you need to have a capitalistic society um, to to really thrive. Um, but there are there are things right now that that are really not fair, and 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 and, and I do believe that um, a secretary shouldn't pay higher tax rates than a billionaire it just it just intuitively it it doesn't make sense um i don't have the solution for that but um it's a very political thing and what most people look at is you know i could tell you everything that's good for me and good for my clients and for my business but that's not necessarily what's best for from a societal standpoint so you try to balance everything and you know you look at everything um, through the lens of, yes, what you're doing because you have to be selfish to an extent, but you also have to look at things through the lens of a of, of a societal st- from a societal standpoint and figure out what's fair because look, at the end of the day, if more and more money becomes concentrated in fewer and fewer hands and more and more people are becoming homeless, eventually bad things are going to happen. So they're going to have to figure out some way to do that. I don't have the solution, I have zero interest in getting in politics. But um, that's something that has to be solved for because the inequality of wealth is one of the biggest problems that that the next two, three generations are gonna have.
1: A lot of the families that you serve or the companies that serve the families that you serve, are these families generally like wanting to have the conversation about that type of thing? Are they they wanting to do a lot for charity and, and grow these things?
0: So it's a great question. Um, in general, you know, philanthropy is, I'm very, is a very important component of my life. Um, many of these family offices are very, very philanthropic. And if you look at, so my dad passed away from prostate cancer at 57. Um, my first job was at Drexel Burnham. Michael Milken, who basically created, helped to create, put Drexel on the, on the, on the mark, um, developed prostate cancer. And when he got out, when he got out, um, He basically built it like a VC fund. So rather than putting a hundred million dollars into a venture capital fund, he put a million here, 2 million here, 500,000 here, and he built it like a venture capital fund. And rather than throwing it to the American Cancer Society, and because of him, we and all the male listeners, if we live long enough, will die with, but not of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And then you look at what Bill Gates did, you know, for vaccines, I would argue he did more than the government. So you can't run a philanthropy um, exactly like a business, but kind of my North Star is looking for ways to have these uber successful serial entrepreneurs and utilize their skill sets, but not necessarily to create alpha to solve some of these world problems. And I think that's what's starting to happen. It's not going to come from the government, I don't think. And it's not going to come from the corporate sector. It's going to come from a lot of these people like gates or like milken who are david rubenstein who who really want to make a difference and look at this much more from a business standpoint
1: i would love to know more about you ron like your development of your skills and a lot of your positions uh and so like the skills of analyzing deals like what was your journey like in in building that skill
0: set uh like probably most people's when you're young um and you know you're just getting started out you're and you do fairly well in school you think you're pretty right most of the time and uh until you get humbled and you realize you make you make mistakes um so for me a lot of it was um it was an evolution and it was a process of really listening i mean i'm getting i'm not great at it but i'm good at it i'm getting better just listening to people is so important And a lot of times when you're talking to somebody, you know, my dad, I remember he was a banker and he used to tell me that you could always tell who the lawyer in the room and who the entrepreneur in the room was because the lawyer was the one in general who would try to show that they're the smartest person in the room. In general, the entrepreneur would come in and he would try to find the smartest guy in the room. So I kind of look at myself more as an entrepreneur. I don't want to be, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room and surround and find the smartest guy. So, it, it, and to do that, you need to be able to look at an ego, which is a double-edged sword. You need a, a big ego to, to first to, to, to succeed, but you also have to be able to put it in a proper place. So I think ego is a huge component of, um, the success for a lot of people, you know, just because I'm good at this doesn't mean I'm good at that. And if you could find people who you trust and you surround yourself with, um, typically more often than not, good things will happen.
1: Yeah. And so basically the who, not how model, and was there like a pivotal moment where that came into focus or that something just was came very naturally to you?
0: I don't think either. Uh, it, It wasn't a, specific moment and i don't think it necessarily came natural it's like over the course of learning you know hopefully as we get older we learn more and you know you you learn from wisdom and you learn from experience and you learn from other people so it wasn't one specific event um and it didn't necessarily come natural but i just learned and again i'm not right this is just kind of how i live my life um i just it you know there's in in, in some of the um, Eastern cultures, they really have so much respect for the elders. Our culture is the opposite Mm -hmm. and that's not good. Um, So I'm not saying necessarily that somebody who's 80 years old is by definition wiser than you, but in general, if they've had more life experiences than you, um, they could look at things more objectively and, and subjectively. And I think that in order for anybody to, I mean, if the ultimate goal is to become enlightened or whatever, however you want to determine that, um, a lot of it has to do with listening to other people. And that's the skill set we all need to work on. 100%.
1: Let's talk about deal evaluation. Like a lot of times, you know, teachers or gurus will say, hey, you need to evaluate 100 deals before you ever buy one. Uh, what would be your instruction to somebody about how many deals should they evaluate before they buy one? What should be their... You know activity to become really really great at evaluating deals
0: it's a really good question um you know we'll probably that's probably about the right number we'll probably look at 100 deals um before we actually pull a trigger on on something so most investments and they might be good investments um but there's some aspect of it that that doesn't fit check a box um so we typically will look at about 100 deals or so uh before we'll we'll pull the trigger on one Um, but a lot of it has to do with where the deal coming from, um, you know, and then you just do the due diligence from there.
1: I love thinking about human personality and psychology. Do you think there is a personality type that is more likely to be successful in the family office space than other personality types?
0: Um, another good question. Um, I think that you need a certain amount of humility. Um, I think you need a certain amount of patience. Um, you can't be myopic. You have to have a long-term perspective on things. And this is also very much of a relationship business. So, um, when I meet with somebody, um, for the first time, um, you know, all I, if I know they are they invest a lot of money in, in real estate and I happen to have a really good, it's been vetted, you know, real estate deal, I won't even consider showing it to them because I don't know them that well. Even if I think the deal is terrific, I want to learn what they're looking for and they need to understand that my interests are really learning about what they're looking to do. And the mistake a lot of people make is they see an incredible deal, and you guys, I'm sure, see great deals all the time. Um, but if the very first phone call you're having with somebody, even if it is a fantastic deal, is to pitch that deal, that's probably not the best way to, to develop a long-term relationship. So to me, the entire business of family offices in general, and I think it, when you look at most successful people, no matter what they do, It's all based, unless you're a savant, which I'm not, and just beyond, you know, smart in a specific thing, it's your ability to create relationships. And that's really the key to success, in my opinion.
1: Give us a breakdown. Like, let's say someone, you know, is starting to have some success in investing, et cetera, and they want to do family office what is the process that you go through like how much relationship do you recommend building with somebody before bringing a deal is it a handful of conversations is it a specific outcome like you need to know these five pages of information about them
0: there's no right answer but you know you need to give value before you even ask for anything so um even if it's a multi-billion dollar family office i could add a lot of value and how i could add value to them is you know, introduce them to other family offices. I don't even need to be involved in the conversations. So if they understand that you're te- you know, you're going to be wrong in your investment sometimes and we're wrong sometimes, but our intent is always good and we're thoughtful, right? And they know that. So if people know that you've got their best interest at heart and you're thoughtful in your, in, in your decision-making um, that's really what people care about. People will, you're going to lose money. We've lost money in, in deals. It, it, it just happens because nobody's perfect. Um, but if the interests are aligned and the reason you made, you know, nobody foresaw Silicon Valley bank going, you know, going under two days ago, right? Maybe a couple people did, but most people didn't. So there's certain external things that are completely out of our control, but what we can control is, you know, figuring out ways to add value. And I think we live in a society where I want to do it as quick as possible. And I want to take, take, take. And it's almost the opposite. You have to look at it from a long-term perspective and give. And I can't tell you why, but what I found is the more you give, the more you get. And I can't explain why.
1: Can you give us an example of a time where you delayed longer than maybe you wanted to? And maybe what the outcome of that, of what that was.
0: Yeah, um, there was... um, I was, um, trying to, when, when I had my hedge fund, um, there was a, it was a, it was a large check. There was somebody who's was going to, um, put in a $20 million check. And it was, it was really between me and like two other companies and both of these other companies were more established than me and had, they were much older and had much bigger firms, you know, bigger, deeper benches. Um, I really wanted the business as did they, um, Their sales tactic was to talk about, um, you know, their track record and, you know, their biggest drawdowns and how they handle things and how they um, hedge things and their risk mitigation and all that. What I did is I just I wrote a letter, a handwritten letter, and I just said, look, I said, the two firms you're talking to, they're really good firms. I know them; they're really good firms Um, and they've got a deeper bench than I do. But what I can tell you is that this is a very important, you're you're a very important, would be a very important client to me. And I could promise you that I'll be honest, that I'll try very hard. I'll work really hard and I'll do anything I can to add value. And it was like a two-page written note. And we ended up winning the deal. And it wasn't because they, I don't think, because they thought that, I was smarter or more qualified than the other two firms because I probably wasn't. It was more a function of, and he said this to me eventually if somebody's going to take the time to write a two page handwritten letter, I want to work with that person. So, again, not necessarily that I was more competent or qualified, but the fact that I took the time to do it. So, you know, how many times do you get handwritten letters in the mail? Almost never and i i i was writing out of i I was pure i was like i really wanted this business it was really important it really helped me take my my firm to the next level but i said it in a way and i told them and i didn't i never said anything bad about the other firms i said they're actually great firms i i would use them too but um that's really i think why they went with me and i think that um knowing that people i've got an accountant saul so saul Um, is is a great accountant. Are there accountants who are as good or possibly know a little bit more? Probably. But anytime, if I'm close to filing the deadline for my tax returns, he gets more stressed out than me. I've got to calm him down, not the other way around. I want to work with that person, right? So those are the types of people that you want to work with, in my opinion. And I think that's why eventually that um, family chose to work with me.
2: Absolutely tremendous, Ron. I love that response because the little things really make the biggest difference in the long run. Um, I would love to know, Ron, um, if you had access or if you had a billion dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes full of cash flow, what would you be doing with your time? What would Ron Diamond do if he didn't need to work anymore?
0: Probably exactly what I'm doing. So I spend a decent amount of my time investing, which to me, is not I enjoy it, so it's not really work. Um, I spend a decent amount of my time um, in philanthropy, which I think is far more important than creating alpha in in a great real estate or private equity deal. Um, I run a couple Tiger Twenty One groups, which is a peer to peer group, um, and again, that is very fulfilling for me because I think I could add value to a lot of these people. Um, you know, and we talk. It's like YPO after you've sold your company. Uh, And it's an extraordinary organization. So um, I I don't think I would do anything different. Um, You know, I I, I think that I've tried to live a life. I've tried to be thoughtful in what I do. Um, I've, you know, done well enough where I don't have to do certain things. And I can afford to spend my time doing different things. So I don't think if you added another zero to my net worth that I would do anything different. I would like to think I wouldn't.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it comes across, Ron, I hear the word provide value over and over throughout this interview. So what is your goal for the next 12 months or so? What is your vision? How are you looking to provide value to the world over the next short-term period?
0: I typically look at things in increments of five years. Um, it's hard for me to look at things from, cause 12 months is such a short period of time. Um and and it's I'm not right. It's just how I how I view the world. Um and I just think I I don't have a, a goal of, you know, I wanna, you know do X number more deals or whatever. It, as long as I know that that I'm doing my best and um and trying as best I can, um, and being true to myself. I mean, part of the problem with a lot of people is they you know, Shakespeare had the, you know, the, be true to thyself. I mean, that that's really important. You have to know who you are. And I know a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who shouldn't be because they don't have the stomach for it. And I know a lot of people who work in corporate America who shouldn't be because they're more entrepreneurial. So understanding yourself and, and is really, really important. And for me, I would like to continue to add to the philanthropic world. I'd like to continue to work with um, some of these family offices that have the Michael Milkins or the David Rubenstein's or the Bill Gates's of the world to solve some of these. That's kind of my North star. So, and then most importantly, my family is, you know, the most important, I've got an incredible wife and two spectacular daughters and, you know, wonderful. So I try to spend as much time with them as I can. So I, what, what I do differently now that I didn't do as much before, I spend my time with a lot fewer people that I really, really love and care about than wanting to go to these parties with 50, 70, 100 people, right? So um, I'm spending more and more time with fewer and fewer people, and I think that's going to probably continue.
2: Absolutely tremendous. So I've learned recently that the longer the time horizon people think, the more wealthy they tend to be. You're the first person that had said you tend to think in five years, and that is no surprise to me at all, Ron. I love... Something you just said. You said something about self-awareness being one of the most important aspects. Like, what kind of strategies have you used in order to find self-awareness? Because I feel like that's something that dodges most people. And most people are much less self-aware than they think they are.
0: Well, I'm, you know, I don't consider, some people would look at me as an entrepreneur. I don't really consider myself an entrepreneur because, you know, in in my Tiger 21 group, I've got people, they're all phenomenal people um, who've taken risks that, Th- and they turned out well but if the risk didn't work out they could have gone you know could have lost their company or or, or whatever i'm not wired that way right so um i more consider myself i call it kind of a entrepreneur. so i'd love to be an entrepreneur but i don't have the um risk tolerance to to do that where i could never be a trader on the on the floor of the exchange it's not that i don't have the capabilities of or didn't have the capabilities of doing it when the when you could it was just the fact that I couldn't come home and know that I could be wiped out the next day. Uh, I'm not wired. now, having said that some people are wired that, that way. So I think you over period of time, over through listening, through learning, through reading, through thinking through, you know, could be through meditation, through yoga whatever, whatever it is, you know, you just learn more about yourself and the more you understand yourself. And again, it just this is what works for me, and I'll learn more about myself over the next ten to twenty years too. Um, and ultimately, they, they you know they call it enlightenment or you know whatever you want to call it, um, but you know or self actualization as Maslow would call it. I just think that you have to understand yourself, cannot compare yourself to anybody, and just be true to yourself. And if you do that, typically good things happen. I believe
2: absolutely ron i am in 100 percent agreement with you um if the audience wanted to reach out with you what would be the best way to get in touch i'm sure an assistant would be ideal we don't want them overflowing you with deals for sure um but is there a lead magnet or something you would like us to send them yeah to? i
0: mean i'm fairly ac- um i don't do social media other than linkedin i'm fairly active on linkedin and i i write a lot of content on linkedin so i would say just hook up with me th- through linkedin and then I also have a family office podcast, it's called familyofficeworldpodcast.com. And we've. I've been fortunate to interview some One. we just did an interview with um, Tony Pritzker, we did one with David Rubenstein, we did, I mean, Eric Becker, Avi Stein. So I've done some really fascinating people, um, but I would say those are the two best ways, um, either through the website, through the Family Office World website or through LinkedIn.
2: Absolutely tremendous, Ron. Thank you so much. I I have been enthralled with this conversation. I have five pages of notes and I was listening for like 40 minutes. Um, Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business, Ron. Um, And to those of you out there chasing freedom, be the dumbest guy in the room and seek out the smartest person in the room. But remember, intelligence is a commodity, but integrity is not. So align yourself with the right people, respect the wisdom of your elders, look at life from a long-term perspective because the more you give the more you get and before you know it you too will be living a life of freedom so thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one